0: Hey, I'm Christopher Schiefling, and this is Auscultation, a podcast in search of a humanities-based practice of healthcare. Thanks so much for joining. Today, we're listening to excerpts from Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats, a 19th century British poet most famous for his romantic odes and his incredibly short career, Only Seven Years. Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past, and leithwards had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged Dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beechen green, in shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep-delled earth, Tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provincial song, and sunburnt mirth, That I might drink and leave the world unseen, and with thee fade away into the forest dim, Fade far away, dissolve. And quite forget what thou amongst the leaves has never known. The weariness, the fever, and the fret. Here where men sit and hear each other groan. Where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs. Where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies. Away, away, for I will fly to thee. Not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of Poesy. Darkling, I listen, and for many a time, I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many amused rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath. Now, more than ever, seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird, no hungry generations tread thee down. Some Thoughts on Tuberculosis This poem is famous for its devastating expression of suffering, which is a hallmark of Keats' romanticism. Much of this imagery resonates with the signs and symptoms of tuberculosis, an illness that Keats knew overly well. When he was a child, his mother died of consumption, as it was known in the 1800s England and a year before the publication of Ode to a Nightingale, he was the primary caregiver for his brother, who was dying from tuberculosis. Three years later, Keats himself would succumb to the illness at the age of 25. Additionally, before becoming a poet, he trained to become an apothecary and a surgeon, where he would have extensive experience with the presentation and treatment of this disease. In fact, observations of how well he treated his mother had led to him to be encouraged to pursue a medical career. Tuberculosis is a bacterial infection that can cause an array of symptoms, most commonly causing pulmonary disease with its iconic bloody cough. It can remain dormant in the body for years, and once active, it advances over months to years with progressive weight loss, fever, fatigue, and difficulty breathing. It is most easily spread among those living and working in tight quarters, which is why it greatly afflicted the urbanized lower classes during the Industrial Revolution. The poem begins with a list of symptoms, chest pain, fatigue, and numbness. Quote, My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense. All of these can arise from tuberculosis. Whether from destroying the lungs or causing inflammation of the heart, TB frequently causes chest pain. As mentioned previously, lethargy is a classic symptom, particularly of advanced disease. Finally, it is curious that the first line ends with the apparently contradicting phrase Numbness Pains. This captures the tingling sensation of neuropathy, or nerve irritation, that results in simultaneous numbness and discomfort. Tuberculosis can cause neuropathy either by affecting the peripheral nerves or by forming masses that compress the spinal cord, known as Pott's disease. The narrator goes on to list the woes of humanity that the nightingale will never know the weariness, the fever, and the fret. Here where men sit and hear each other groan, where youth grows pale and spectre-thin and dies. All the hallmarks of tuberculosis are here, the weariness, the fever, and a spectre-thin cachexia. The youth paleness alludes to anemia, which is another common feature that arises from the body's adaptation to a chronic infection and to the blood loss from the cough. After finishing his surgical training, Keats decided not to practice, and instead become a poet. In those days, surgeons had an unsavory social standing, as their work without anesthesia was fast, painful, and fraught with complications. So, as a poet, Keats tried to distance himself from this profession, though many detractors during his day did call attention to it. Nevertheless, much of the force of Keats' spectacular imagery of suffering draws on the afflictions of tuberculosis. This episode is brought to you by birds. You know, the things with feathers? More than a pretty face and operatic pipes, birds help produce waste, pests, and disease, and they do it all without asking for a dime. Contrary to popular belief, magpies do not actually collect shiny objects, dimes included. So the next time you see your neighboring sparrow, say thanks. In addition to the symptoms of tuberculosis, the poem alludes to various treatments at the time. While the hemlock and dull opiate of the first stanza, are commonly linked to the narrator's desire for death. They were both used to alleviate symptoms of TB. Hemlock, which is most famous for being the agent for Socrates' capital punishment, is a neurotoxin that causes paralysis and was used at lower doses as an antitussive. Similarly, opiates are still prescribed for both cough and shortness of breath. Another common treatment for tuberculosis was to travel to areas with purported health benefits, such as cleaner air, warmer climate, contact with nature, and increased sun exposure. Keats himself traveled to Italy for this very purpose. In a similar sense, the narrator asked for a drink, quote, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provincial song, and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm South. Like much of modern healthcare, the narrator dreams of encapsulating the labor needed for lifestyle changes into the simplicity of a medicine. Echoing Hamlet, the poetic voice contemplates sleep and death as an escape from illness. We hear that I might drink and leave the world unseen, and also fade far away, dissolve. And quite forget. Later in the poem, the desire for death becomes more explicit in the famous stanza that reads For many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many a mused rhyme. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such ecstasy. However, the narrator rejects death and drugs as paths from suffering, exclaiming, Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy. The turn from death is more subtle. First, the phrase, I have been half in love with easeful death, holds many qualifiers. Have been implies the narrator no longer feels the sway and was only a half-desire at the time. Similarly, even when playing up this wish with, quote, now more than ever, the narrator pulls this back with seems it rich to die. It only appears rich. It is a false hope. Unlike Hamlet, who draws back from death for fear of the unknown and of possible eternal punishment, the narrator turns back because of the nightingale's song. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. By dying, the narrator will forsake the song, and even though the bird will fly away, the song will live on, because thou was not born for death a mortal bird. The hope of poetry is a well that won't run dry. Some thoughts on the good death. The desire for an easeful death and to cease upon the midnight with no pain still resonates with the prevailing wish to die in one's sleep. Susan Sontag argues that tuberculosis was romanticized as a disease of progressive dematerialization and increasing spiritualization. She writes, TB is thought to provide an easy death. For over a hundred years, TB remained the preferred way of giving death a meaning, an edifying and refined death. Nineteenth-century literature is stocked with descriptions of almost symptomless, unfrightening, beatific deaths from TB. This puts new perspective on the narrator's desire to fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget, and for death to, quote, take into the air my quiet breath. In this way, Keats presents the romantic death from consumption. He dangles this good death out in front of the reader, and still the narrator turns away. Perhaps it is the hope of the remembrance through art vis-à-vis the immortal bird that leads to this rejection. However, it can also be that Keats, with all his experience as a caregiver and a surgeon in training, knows that the idealization of of TB is a myth. He knows the myriad forms of suffering that tuberculosis can inflict. He knows that progressive fatigue is often not peaceful and that drowsiness can be painful. He concludes the stanza with to the high, high requiem become a sod. Rather than transcending into a spiritual realm, in death, the narrative would become a sod, a piece of earth even more grounded and corporal than before, buried. In contrast to the immortal bird not born for death, the poem implies the narrator will be tread down by hungry generations. This imagery conveys the existential dread of being forgotten in time, but also alludes to tuberculosis, which was envisioned as an illness that consumed the body through an excess of passion. Hence the name, consumption. Hungry generations is also an apt reference to tuberculosis because it often affected many generations of a family, just as with Keats' family. Just as Keats challenges the romanticization of death from tuberculosis, we can question the merits of dying in one's sleep. This desire stems, in large part, from a wish to avoid suffering, whether that's physical pain, loss of independence, spiritual crisis, or fear of being a burden. It also carries the undercurrent of death denial. It implies it is better to not be conscious of one's death, to be caught asleep, and not have to face this demon head-on. There are and have have been many other ideas of the good death. In Norse mythology, warriors who died in battle were prized with a place in Valhalla, and the indigenous Mesoamericans honor those who died in war and in childbirth. Similarly, Christianity has long venerated martyrs who echoed the suffering of Jesus. Additionally, Buddhism encourages regular reflection on death, as well as the presence of family and friends during the dying process for the edification of all involved. And perhaps the question of what a good death looks like is misleading. The question itself offers a sense of control that for all our technological advances, we are still sorely lacking. As certain as death is, much more remains uncertain. Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense As though hemlock I had drunk Or emptied some dull opiate to the drains One minute past, and wards had sunk Tis not through envy of thy happy lot But being too happy in thine happiness That thou, light-winged Dryad of the trees In some melodious plot of beechen green In shadows numberless, singest of summer and full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep-delled earth, Tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provincial song, and sunburnt mirth, That I might drink and leave the world unseen, and with thee fade away into the forest dim, Fade far away, dissolve and quite forget what thou amongst the leaves Hast never known, the weariness, the fever, and the fret. Here where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by bacchus and his pards but on the viewless wings of poesy darkling i listen and for many a time i have been half in love with easeful death called him soft names in many amused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath now more than ever seems it rich to die to cease upon the midnight with no pain while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such ecstasy. Still would South sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird, no hungry generations tread thee down. "To a Nightingale by John Keats was published in 1819 and is now part of Public Domain. You can find show notes for this episode at anauscultation.wordpress.com and you can send comments, suggestions, and questions to the Twitter handle at or to the email anauscultation at gmail.com. Auscultation is produced and recorded on the ancestral home of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, or share to help others find out about us too. Until next month, be kind and live the questions.